This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. It was really good. I was really happy that we were able to do it, and especially happy that students afterwards came up to me and said, boy, this is what we really needed. This is what we've been dying to get. This has been so helpful. And so that's, that's great. That's the whole idea. So, ready? Let's try. I'm one? Okay, great. <clears throat> well, I was looking for a definition of solidarity. Um, and first of all, hang in there with me. Um, I haven't had a lot of time to do a lot of preparation, so a lot of this is going to be speaking, coming out of my own experience, and I'll have to refer to notes. But I was looking for a definition of solidarity, and one that I really resonated with was a definition by Gustavo Gutierrez, who's considered to be the father of Latin American liberation theology. Uh, and he writes, there is no true commitment to solidarity with the poor if one sees them merely as people passively waiting for help. Respecting their status as those who control their own destiny is an indispensable condition for genuine solidarity. For that reason, the goal is not to become, except in cases of extreme urgency or short duration, the voice of the voiceless. Now, we all want to be the voice of the voiceless, and Gustavo says, that's not what we should be aiming for. Uh, he says, as is sometimes said, undoubtedly with the best intentions, but rather in some way to help ensure that those without a voice find one. Being an agent of one's own history is for all people an expression of freedom and dignity, the starting point and source of authentic human development. And that, for me, says it all. Not being the voice of the voiceless, but in some way strengthening the capacity of those who um, have, have been deprived of their voice to find their own voice and to act and speak in their own name. So what I'd like to do is, uh, when I met earlier in the week with some of your team leaders, um, I guess to share some of my own story um, and uh, give you some of the principles uh, behind an organization that I was a part of for about 12 years. So the story that I'm going to share is a story of um, Philadelphia Interfaith Action and, uh, and my work with them. Um, and uh, I guess it was my experience in what it means to be in solidarity with, with this organization. So I should say that I joined Vill Villanova. I actually, I started at Villanova in 1970. You weren't even thought of in 1976. Uh, I came on as a part-time teacher in the Theology and Religious Studies Department. And, um, and then by 78, I was offered a full-time job in the department. And uh, I just had finished my dissertation. Actually, I, I defended my dissertation the day before I started teaching full-time here at Villanova. When I was hired full-time, the committee that hired me, the chair of the committee, said to me, you have to have your dissertation finished and completed before you start teaching. So I do everything. You know, I always complain about my students who do things last minute. I really can't complain because I do it last minute as well. So I, I defended my dissertation the day before. <coughs> I started teaching, and I remember walking into my first class and saying, oh man, I am in trouble. I don't know the name of this course. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm teaching. All I know is I'm here. Um, but I did my dissertation on world hunger, and it was on the responsibility of, of uh, education, and in particular, uh, Christian education, to address the problem of world hunger. So 
I guess when I came to Villanova, I really, I really did feel that I was one of the leading experts on world hunger in the country, and I, I, I do think I was at the time. Um, I, and I already, by the time I finished my dissertation, I already had a book contract to have the book published. It, uh, the book itself won the prize uh, for the best book of, of the year with, with the College Theology Society. I was getting a lot of requests for lectures around the country. I was really, it was a heady experience, and I really said, my name's going to be up in lights. And I was really, I was, you know, the way a lot of, hi Tyler, the way a lot of uh, young faculty here, they, I mean, they really want to make a name for themselves. They want to impact the profession. Um, so um, my second book was a book on justice, ed justice in education. And that book took a long time to write. You know, I'm not going to tell you how long because it's really embarrassing. But uh, it really, you know, when I started writing it to when I concluded it, I really went through, I think, a major change in my own thinking about my work and what really mattered and where I was really needed and where I wanted to spend my time. And over that period of 78 to when it was finally published, um, I encountered the writing of John Sobrino, uh, who was a Jesuit in El Salvador, still in El Salvador, and Father Ignacio Ayacaria, one of the Jesuits who was murdered, who was the president of the University of Central America in El Salvador, and he was mur murdered because he, he was using his leadership to move the university uh, to adopt a preferential option for the poor and be a real player in bringing an end to the Civil War in El Salvador and furthering justice in El Salvador. <coughs> So to start the story, um, I really wanted to know, for my second book, I really wanted to know where is the church uh, working for change and how is it able to affect change? And I didn't want to know anything about, you know, on the national level. I, I wasn't interested in the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops or the U.S. Catholic <coughs> Campaign for Human Development. I really wanted to know on the grassroots level, concretely, where is the church making a difference, particularly in the inner city? And I had a, a I have a very good friend, his name is Father John McNamee. Um, I knew him since I was 18. He married my husband and me, baptized my kids, buried my parents, the whole works. And he was um, a pastor at St. Malachy's Church uh, in inner city Philadelphia. It's right near Temple University. So I called him up one day and said, you know, Jack, I said, you know, I really, this is a research area I'm interested in. And I explained to him and he said, well, you're in luck. I'm always in luck, right? <laughs> always in luck. We're just starting this new organization in Philadelphia, and why don't you come down and sit in on some of them? I'm sure they'd be so happy to meet you and hear what you're interested in. You could attend the meetings and blah, blah, blah. Well, they weren't happy that <laughs> I came down. Um, and, um, and, and I was looked at as someone who was intruding. And, um, and then, of course, I was really pretty aggressive, and I said, well, I know you're starting this organization and I'm going to be doing a lot of interviews, but I'd really like to go through the training that the Industrial Areas Foundation has for community leaders. Could I go through the training? And then they gave me a hard time and said, we don't, we don't want you in the training, that the training is for people in the community, um, leaders in the community. Um, you would be a distraction. And, and then I said, well, you know, is this a matter of cost? Well, I to make a long story short, they finally let me go through the training. Um, 
So I'm talking about um, the inner city. There were a number of inner city pastors in Philadelphia. They were Catholic, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, Independent Baptist, um, some um, Jewish rabbis. Uh, we didn't have anyone from the Islamic faith. But they had come together. They were, had been meeting for a couple of months at St. Malachi's Church. And basically, um, they, they were meeting because uh, things were getting very bad in the city. Uh, they, uh, I mean, the crime was on the rise. Uh, they were finding more and more people were coming to their the rectories asking for food. They were asking for rides to the emergency room. Um, the, the city was becoming more and more violent. And the pastors had started, they had started soup kitchens, they had started, you know, uh, they, you know, closed pantries, they had helped to get people jobs, and they were just finding that they were just putting their fingers in the dike, and the dike was bursting, you know, where they plugged one hole up, it was bursting all in 10 other places. And they had heard about an organization in New York City um, that was organizing principally in Brooklyn. Um, and it was called, the organization was called uh, East Brooklyn Congregations, and it was an affiliate of the Industrial Areas Foundation. So the pastors had heard about EBC and the phenomenal work that EBC was doing, and they had also heard that it was part of a network of organizations affiliated with the Industrial Areas Foundation. And so they had been meeting to, and they had contracted with the Industrial Areas Foundation to um, to find out if the IAF would take them on as, uh, and would help to build an organization in Philadelphia. So they had to raise a lot of money uh, for this. Um, each, each congregation had to commit, I think, um, I'm pretty sure, I think, I think the total that they had to raise was $275,000. And the Catholics had gotten a grant from the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops for $75,000. So there was money involved. Because you're basically entering into a contract with the Industrial Areas Foundation to train you to become a community organization. Okay. So part of that, becoming a part of a community organization, was going through training, leadership training. So um, the pastors had raised the money and uh, they had signed on to go through this leadership training that was taking place in Baltimore. And that's what I try to become, I try to get in on that. So, um, so um, the, the, so the, so, so the training. So I, um, I, I pay, I think I paid, I must have paid five, maybe $5,000 to participate in the leadership training. And I raised it. I mean, there used to be a vice president here, uh, an academic vice president, Larry Gallen, who's the Gallen Service Award now. And Larry, uh, Larry liked me. I have no idea why he liked me. But I was telling Father Donahue last night at a dinner, I said I would knock on Larry's door, and he would say to me, Sue, don't even tell me. Don't give me your, your spiel. Tell me how much you want. So that was, get it out. Tell me how much you're asking for. And then and I would ask him, and then I would say, look, Larry, you know, I spent hours preparing my spiel. Let me say it. And he would say, okay, but I'm going to give you three minutes, and that's it. 
and he, he, was, he was phenomenal. But he would, he would usually find the money to support whatever crazy idea I had. And this was you know, one of the crazier ideas, but I got money from Larry to do it. And I put some of my own money in. So anyway, with the instructions, the IAF instructions, I remember clearly reading, make sure it was at a, at a, it was at a hotel near the airport. And the, the instructions were, we start on time and we end on time, right? And I'm driving, and I'm getting lost. This was before GPS, and I'm lost, you know, really lost. And I'm wearing, it was hot, and I'm wearing shorts. So I finally get there. I run into the room, and there are all these people around, and uh, this room, um, mostly people of color. And I burst in, and I say hello to all of them. <laughs> I'm Sutot, and here I am, and it's like, you're late. And you're not dressed appropriately for the meeting. You just dress disrespectfully. So it's like, well, I can't do much about it right now. So, um, but um, what I learned when I was there is that there was one group of people, and, uh, and these were academics. They actually had, they actually, there were a number of academics who had asked to do the same thing that I was asking. And basically, this was one of the ways that the IAF was going to support this training for the local, for leaders from the local congregations. So the academics were in the other room, and I was in the room with all of the, you know, very poor people, uh, people of color, cross denominations, and me. And so the, the training was 10 days. And in the very beginning of the training, I think what was annoying to me was the people in the other room, the academics, they seemed to be laughing a lot. There was a lot of noise coming out of there. And in my room, it was much more serious conversation going on. And, um, and I kept saying to myself, I want to be with them because it must be much more interesting. But what happened, they put me purposely in this group so that I could hear, um, I could hear the stories of the people, very, very poor people, and what they had to deal with day in and day out, um, the struggles, the stories of you know, the violence in their neighborhoods, uh, the stories of police brutality, um, the stories of, um, oh my God, uh, how nothing was working, how they could never get, you know, even if there was, they couldn't get the attention of the police, they couldn't get the attention of City Hall, they couldn't get the firefighters to come to put the fires out. It was just amazing to hear these stories. And also the stories of how they started to organize among themselves, you know, to, uh, to drive people to um, the emergency rooms, uh, you know, to uh, stories of how they would line up, the parents in the mornings would line up on the route that kids walk to school so the kids could get to their schools safely. Um, it, it, this, you know, pastors who were, you know, just, they were at their wits' end. So it, the, the stories that I was hearing were just phenomenal. And what happened was I, I came to see that I was in the right room and that I needed to listen, I needed to hear, I needed to learn. And, that, and I, start, I started um, being very grateful for where I was. So um, I just remember that even when they started in the training, there would be, you know, the trainer would ask questions. And I was always the one, I was always shooting up my hand, I know the answer to that, I know what you're getting at. 
And the trainer would basically shoot me down and say, you know, be quiet, you know, let so-and-so in. And I just remember there was a black woman that I was sitting next to, and she, she was living in uh, right around Temple University. She must have been 80 years old, I think. She was probably my age, but I always thought of her as being 80, Mrs. Higgs. And at one point, Mrs. Higgs reached over to me. She said, honey, don't let him t do that to you. Don't let him put you down. Don't let him... You don't let him do that. And I said, yeah, but Mrs. Higgs, I'm not getting anywhere. And she said, don't let him do that. And I said, no, I said. So um, I developed a, a, a good relationship with uh, Mrs. Higgs. Um, but at the end of the 10-day training, I found that to be one of the most powerful experiences in my life. Poor people, uh, their pastors and the academics who are in the periphery, all praying together praying for their children, praying for their pastors, praying for their congregations, praying for their neighborhood, singing together. And I, I you know, um, rabbis, Catholic pastors, you know, Mennonites, um, Methodists, it, it probably was the most powerful, one of the most powerful experiences of my life. I'd never been in a gathering like that. Different races, different classes, different political persuasions. Um, so we returned to Philadelphia, and again, now ready to do this wonderful research, only to find out when I returned that the cardinal, Cardinal Bevilacqua, called the Catholic pastors in of the five inner city Catholic parishes and told them that they could not be part of this new organization that was forming. And the name we gave the organization was Philadelphia Interfaith Action. And the cardinal said that you don't belong, you don't you do not um, need to join another organization, um, that the Catholic Church in Philadelphia had plenty of social services. They could work through the social services. They didn't need to belong to this organization of Mennonites and Baptists and on and on. And that, in, and moreover, that if they, in fact, joined the organization, that their parishes were going to be closed. <laughs> so he threatened them. You know? And so um, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't because they were fighting for the lives of their congregations. So um, now, Will, it's five after four. Tell me how much I have to go. Still have a little bit of time? 15 minutes, <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, yeah, roll, move it. No, no, so, no, no, do it, okay, okay. So he told them they couldn't. They, they couldn't be members of the congregations. They couldn't be members of PIA. So um, several of the Catholics got together, and we said, so what are we going to do, roll over and play dead? And we said, no, we're not going to roll over and play dead. You can't join an, an IAF organization. Um, you can't join it as an individual. You had to join it as a collective, like a congregate, like a church, right? Uh, or like an agency. So we formed our own agency, and we called ourselves the Roman Catholic Caucus. And so we joined. And so at the opening event, we were there. We weren't, you know, Philadelphia Catholic churches, but we were the Roman Catholic Caucus. And each member of an IAF organization pays money, so we had to raise dues. So, um, let me just, uh, I, I th think what I'm gonna have to do is skip through a lot of this stuff. Um, the, the 
Industrial Areas Foundation was founded by Saul Alinsky, and you may have a, t a chance to learn more about Alinsky's life. Alinsky uh, was trained by John L. Lewis in community in, in labor organizing, and he was a very effective organizer. But what Alinsky came to was there, labor organizing is important, but it was communities that needed to learn how to organize. And so he is considered to be the father of community organizing. So community organizing is different from labor organizing. So communities needed to learn how to organize and to amass power to uh, improve uh, life and dignity in their neighborhoods. So community organizing. And so Alinsky came up with some basic, Alinsky started, you know, wanted to create community organizations across the United States. And he uh, organized first in Chicago, he organized in New York, uh, he organized, uh, he, had or he had organizations in California, but he came up with certain principles of community organizing. The first is power, that what poor communities lack is power. And in order to improve lives in their communities and improve their communities, they needed to amass power. And in very poor communities, power comes from two sources, organized people and organized money. The people don't have, the poor don't have a lot of money, but they have some money, but they do have a lot of people. So organized people and organized money. Um, second principle was that uh, people will join a community organization if they see it is in their own interest. They don't come to an organization, they don't stay in an organization out of altruism. They will join an organization if it is in fact addressing their interests. And what are the interests of many poor people? They want to stay alive. They want their kids to stay alive. They want their kids to be safe. They want their kids to have playgrounds and libraries, and they want supermarkets, and they want banks, and they want good schools, and on and on. Their interest is, they, they truly are interested in, in, in life and dignity for themselves and for their families. Um, he also saw that anger is important, but he talks about anger in terms of cold anger. Um, and he would of, often say that in order to organize effectively, you have to rub raw the wounds of, of discontent. Because what happens is poor people become very content. You know, it's not like they're content, but they're not, but they need to become angry about the situation so that they will not tolerate it any longer, that it becomes unacceptable. So organizing, community organizing, is essentially that of generating anger legitimate, just anger. But it's not the kind of anger that's explosive, it's controlled anger, it's directed anger. And Alinsky would call it cool anger, not hot anger. Also, change. You cannot have change without friction. For Alinsky, friction means movement. And so, confrontation, conflict, um, what else, uh, I can't remember the other words, are essential for change. So friction is essential for change. Okay, compromise. He says, uh, for the world to become the way we want it, uh, we have to work with the world as it is. 
And so real choices need to be made. You're not going to get the best of possible worlds. Um, but you can, and maybe you, maybe, you know, we would love to strive for what is best, but maybe what we need to be striving for is what is least bad. And the other thing he said was that all organizing is relational. And this is very important. Um, one of the basic principles of organizing, all organizing is relational. I always thought that what you go for are the issues, you know? But the community organizing, especially the community organizing uh, influenced by Alinsky, is all about relationship building. Because Alinsky argued that what you're trying to build are organizations. And the or once you have an organization in place, that the organization needs to be strong enough to take on lots of issues, um, like safety, or like jobs, or like schools, or like to, uh, abandoned cars, or like ineffective policing. Um, so um, I can tell you the, I mean, we did a lot. I stayed with PIA for 12 years. Um, I was the, I would say I was the leader of the Roman Catholic Caucus, okay? Um, and my work with them was principally in terms, I guess it was, learning to listen. <laughs> uh, I wasn't in charge in the least. I think one of the silliest things that ever happened was, was one of the, they call them actions. So it was a, meet, a mass meeting with uh, the mayor and there were the inner city, I mean, the mass meetings were like, I mean, they were dramas, really dramas. They were fantastic. I mean, you had the, you had the congregations there, and you had music, and you had the pastors standing up and, and speaking to the mayor and making demands. And, um, but one of the things was one of the pastors who was supposed to be speaking, he was a, a Baptist pastor. He was very fiery. And um, he had to be away when we, he, I, for a week before the action. And so he asked me if I would write his speech. And I said, sure, you know, no problem, or write his speech. So one of the funniest things was I wrote his speech and he started speaking what I wrote. And it sounded like Sue Toten coming through the, the mouth of this fiery Baptist pastor. And it was such an embarrassment. It was like, oh my God, total, total embarrassment because he's, you know, just the way I'm speaking, he's speaking, you know, and that's not the way he speaks. So it was, I, I realized, you know, that that's not my role in this organization. So what would I do? I, basically, um, I wound up, what they asked me to do was to do press. And so I didn't write the press releases because they said my press releases were too long and nobody would ever read them. So as you know, when I write, it's like always has to be from the beginning of time to the end of time. And so they say, that's not a press release. They would write the press releases. But what I would do is I would get on the phones. Uh, I, would, I would call the networks. I would call the newspapers. Um, and I would say to them, we're having this action. This is who's going to be here. We need you here to cover it. Because what you really want, if you have an action, whether it's a mass meeting with the police commissioner or whether it's with the mayor, or um, whether it's uh, police commissioner, mayor, whether it has to do with housing issues. Um, what you want is you want the press to be there. I mean, number one, you want turnout. That's my job, one of my jobs was turnout, okay? So I never do an event on campus now, now, nothing, without good turnout. I work on turnout, you gotta be there. Um, 
Because what's the point if nobody turns up? I mean, people will say, oh, it's a quality event. It's not quantity, it's quality. BS. It's turnout. You want people there. So my job would be turnout. So what we would do was we would work, when we have this mass action, we would work on turnout. And every member of PIA would commit to turning out. At this meeting, we're going to have 75. We commit ourselves 75, and then when the planning meeting, they say 75. What about 100? So we all, you know, 100, 100, 100. Catholic caucus, how many? 150. Um, and but, you know, you so see, you commit, and you say, "Oh my God, how do I produce 150 people?" But so then you work on getting 150 people. And in these mass meetings, we would, at, and they were usually held at a church. Um, we would have a sign: the Roman Catholic Caucus, uh, Mennonites, uh, what would be West Philadelphia Mennonites, uh, Harold O. Davis Memorial Baptist Church, St. Gabriel's Episcopal Church. Uh, St. Luke's Episcopal Church. So we have these signs, big signs. And when you started the meeting, you had to go up and say, hi, I'm Sue Sutton from the leader in the Roman Catholic Caucus. I promised 150, and I came up with 75. And everybody go, boo, you know. Or if you said 150, and I came up with 165, it was yay. But it was a way of showing ourselves, to ourselves, what we looked at, how diverse we, racially diverse, economically diverse, congregationally diverse, to the mayor, to the police commissioner, uh, this is bugging around me, uh, it, it, and to the press who was there. So you turn out, you're here, and we're in solidarity, and we're making demands. And the demands are that, uh, that we're not getting, that the, that the streets are not safe, and we want community policing. We want the police to be in relationship with the neighborhood. We want them to know the people in this neighborhood. So when they come in and they respond to a call, they don't do something stupid, like shoot the wrong person, you know? Or handcuff somebody and throw them in jail and it's, you know, it's the pastor's son. You know, it's like, you don't do that. So we wanted to build a relationship of, of police with community. Um, uh, I mean, I can talk about, uh, let me just give you, I'll give you some, we always did actions with humor. Okay, it was really important because we had a fun. And one of the pastors, one of the Episcopal pastors died about a month ago and I went to her funeral. All of us were there at her funeral. And the, the eulogy was all about these stories that we told and they were funny stories. Um, so I'm gonna give you one example. And this was not from PIA. This is from one of our sister organizations in New York. So let's see. I guess I'll pick the I'll pick the I'll pick two stories. One is, is supermarkets. So, in poor neighborhoods, you have crappy supermarkets, right? You have meat that's moldy. You have freezers where the ice cream is melting. You have the vegetables and the fruit that's rotting. So the community was saying, we want a good supermarket. We want a decent suit. We're paying good money and we're getting this. So they organized, and they decided that they were going to shame the supermarket manager. Okay? It was, and of course, it was part of a supermarket chain. So uh, they had supermarket inspectors. Okay? So these are people from the local community, members of East, this was East Brooklyn congregation. They had badges. And they said, EBC supermarket inspectors. I don't know. Let's just call it, it was giant inspectors. Okay. So they alerted the supermarket manager that the inspectors were going to be coming on Saturday morning. 
Um, they also alerted the press that the inspectors were going to be there. They also alerted the police that the inspectors were going to be there. So what do they do? So they come bright and early Saturday morning with shopping, they take a shopping cart. And what they do is they go around and they pick out the worst vegetables and fruits, the rotting things with the mold and the worms coming out. They put them in the, in the shopping carts. And then they go to the meat counter and then they go to the freezer and they pile it up. All of a sudden, the manager of the supermarket is coming out and says, no, 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 you don't want that. You want this. Here, let me get you a better cut of meat. Let me do this. Let me do And they said, no, this is what we want. So, okay, so then the manager gets bent out of shape, and he says, you know, I'm going to call the police and because you guys are disrupting. And so they said, don't worry, the police are out there already because we called them because we didn't want to be pushed... You know, they didn't want to be pushed around, shoved around, etc. So the police are out there. So he goes out and he sees the police cars. And so we said to him, listen, we want you, this, you're the first of, let's say, four or five supermarkets that we're targeting. You're a manager. And we want you to come, what we want from you is we want you to come to a meeting next Tuesday in one of the churches. And uh, we're going to give you a contract to sign. And the contract that you're signing is that you're going to keep faith with this community, that it's good money, as good as any rich person's money. And we want the quality of the produce to improve, the meats to improve, et cetera. And we're going to keep monitoring. But we want you to sign this contract that you, in fact, will ensure that the food that you are selling to this community is worthy, is decent food, is good, worthy of the dignity of these people. So, so the, let's just say five uh, managers show up Tuesday. Show up Tuesday night, right? And the one of the pastors is sitting in the front with a big gavel, and he bangs the gavel, and he says, "I don't know, Joe Schmo from Giant, come forward." And so Joe Schmo comes forward, and he says to him, uh, "Will you sign this agreement, Joe?" Okay, he signs the agreement, and then you get another one. You get another one. You get another one. Okay. Uh, now, so, so the deal is they've signed this contract now with the community, okay, to deliver goods that are decent. And so we then, so it's covered in the press. They signed the contract, right? It's in the press now. And so then we start, they started to monitor the improvement over time. Uh, that's just uh, one example. But, but what I'm trying to say to you is that um, it, it's basically what Gustavo Gutierrez was saying, and that is that, you know, community, community organizing and community organizations are empowering poor people to act in their own name, to reclaim what belongs to them. Safety in the streets, decent food, uh, decent housing, decent schools for their kids, and they learn in the process of community organizing, they learn how to hold public officials accountable for their action, um, businesses accountable for their action. Um, and they learn to uh, be in relationship, how to be in relationship and stay in relationship with these very powerful people in their communities. Because what poor people know what they have found in the past is their phone calls are not returned. Their requests for meetings are not met. Um, 
they are treated as if they are non-people, as if they don't matter, as if they don't exist. And this is an effort to reclaim their dignity, to reclaim their lives, to reclaim their voice. And so solidarity, they build solidarity among themselves, which is amazing, solidarity among churches, solidarity with dioceses, um, solidarity with the police, amazing, with the police, with the commissioner for housing, uh, solidarity with the mayor. They're basically creating an opportunity for public officials um, to do the right thing, to making it possible for them to make the right choices to protect their public servants, to protect the lives of people in these neighborhoods. And so I learned, what, what I learned, I had I have very small, actually a very small role to play, um, but my, my posture was one of, what do you need from me? I, I want, it was a sense of, I want to be part of this effort. Uh, I really want, I, I want to be with you, I want to stand with you, I want to learn from you, I want to be taught by you. I want to be enlisted in, in any way that you need me. And what did it involve? It involved an awful lot of time on my part, you know, a lot of meetings, going into very dangerous neighborhoods, um, making lots of phone calls, uh, showing up at actions. Um, I mean, my family, I got my kids to, you know, lick envelopes. And so, and it wasn't at times convenient for me. It really wasn't. Uh, it, it, you know, you were when you were needed, you had to be there, and so that's what I learned. That that solidarity does not fit neatly into, you know, your time when you can when you can possibly do it. It it you you go when you're needed. You do what is needed. You make time for it. So, um, no, that's my experience. Great. <laughs> that's that's what it was. So. Okay. Oh, you don't have to. Okay. Way over time. I skipped over a lot of material. What did you skip? Huh? That's my question. What did I skip? Oh, I well, I skipped a lot of stories. I skipped and I, yeah, skipped the skipped about. I skipped a lot. I skipped a lot of the training. Yeah, and a lot of stories. The stories were wonderful. The people, the people I came to know. They're just extraordinary human beings. Oh, that's what I skipped. That's what I really skipped. When I came back to Villain, what I really, in being, in being with this organization, you started to see what really mattered. You know, it wasn't the number of books I published. It wasn't my name in lights. I would see such wimpy faculty, you know, and such wimpy, I'm sorry, faculty administrators. You know, I, I saw very, I saw very, very poor people with amazing courage, amazing integrity, uh, amazing leadership. And there were times here at Villanova that I was embarrassed for my own faculty. And I just said, you know, I, I almost felt like saying, you wimps, you know, you know. And, uh, and you really see it really matters. You know, these are people who are fighting for their lives and for the kids' lives. You know, so puts it all in perspective. Taylor. How do you reconcile the Catholic social teaching principle of subsidiarity, which often has very slow uh, approaches to change, to a sense of urgency that's tied with so many social justice issues? Uh, the, uh, 
I mean, this is, this is subsidiarity. This is people acting in their own name. And as I was saying, uh, being enlisted. And the, the role of the church, as I see it, is to support their efforts. It's not to lead. The institution is there to, so how can we be, a, how can, you know, you're doing servant leader, how can we be, how can we lend our institutional weight to your effort to, for safety, for uh, keep these buildings from falling down and killing people, uh, for a decent school? How can, how can we, how can we be, how, how can the institutional power of this church be enlisted in this effort? You're driving the effort. How can we be part of it? And the urgency, the sense of urgency, I think with, with the power of these institutions behind this organizing effort, the urgency is, it gives a, a greater sense of urgency. See, the problem is, is, that, is, that, is that the, uh, the police, the mayor, Commissioner of, house, of you know, Housing, they don't see this as urgent. This is just poor people being shot. This is just buildings falling down. Um, this is just fires. You know, this is, they get, don't get the sense of urgency. So, so subsidiarity and the sense of urgency, I think, go hand in hand. I really do. So, you know? Yeah. And that's why I was saying, for me, when they, it was urgent. When they needed me there, it was urgent. I had to show up, you know? Uh, yeah. How was the urgency generated in some ways other than a natural crisis? But, you know, how did, you said rubbing wounds. Or how do you, how in an organizing capacity do you generate urgency? Well, I mean, it, yeah. The cool anger as well. Yeah, the cool anger. Well, it, poor people s to also settle. You know, um, and so it's, um, you know, let me give an example. I'm trying to think. Um, okay, so one of the churches, Harold O. Davis Memorial Baptist Church, it's right near Urban Bridges and Cook Middle School, where some of you tutor. Okay, so um, they had a, a preschool, and what, what, they, what the families noticed was that their kids were getting sick. You know, a lot of kids were out. Uh, we're getting migraines, you know, and um, you know, and the thing is to say, okay, so poor kids are getting sick, you know, okay, but it it just became more and more poor kids were getting sick, you know, who were who were who were playing in this churchyard. So the, then, what you've got to do is we need. They're getting sick, and what we what we were thinking is we wouldn't be a bit surprised if that soil was contaminated, and it was. So then, so then you know it just become this is intolerable that these kids are getting sick. These kids are staying out of school. Uh, parents can't take off from work. You know they don't have. So. so then it's like okay, if this is happening, then how do we get the soil tested? So you bring. So we wanted to get the Army Corps of Engineers in to do the test. So we bring the Army. So we, you know, so we bring the Army Corps of Engineers in. Okay. So then you find out there's high levels of arsenic, you know, and mercury in the soil. So then, okay. So now you have the study done. Well, how do you get anybody to do anything about it? So the mayor. So, one, so again. How do you get the mayor to do something about this? The mayor isn't returning phone calls, you know? So we said, okay, 
So the mayor's not coming to us, we're gonna to go to the mayor. So what we did was we took these baggies of the contaminated soil to the mayor's office. And so you get the press and you bring, so how do you do that? Well, it's, you know, it's like the rubbing of the, of the wounds is that, you know, um, it's, 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 the, it's the congregations, it's people saying, this is intolerable, we're not gonna stand for it any longer, we're gonna organize, we're gonna make an issue of it that wasn't an issue. So we took baggies of, and we have photographs of all these baggies in the mayor's reception room. Um, the press is there, and so finally the mayor, you know, he's hiding behind the doors. He finally agrees to meet with them. So we don't take too many baggies in. Take, you know, you can take, you know, a couple baggies in. <laughs> you know, we even had one situation where the buildings were collapsing, and we took bricks to City Hall with the with the numbers of all the buildings that were collapsing. And uh, they wouldn't let us bring the bricks into the mayor's, this is with John Street, into the So we had the bricks outside. So finally the mayor agrees to meet with us so we could take one brick in with one number on. But, uh, but, but you know, when you say rubbing the wounds, uh, you know, what happens is, is, is that as you start to organize, you, you know, you, you, there becomes less of a sense that this is tolerable, that, that it wouldn't be tolerable in King of Prussia or in Valley Forge with buildings collapsing and killing people or contaminated soil, so it shouldn't be there. So it's, it's this agitation um, that, that um, you know, we've, we've just become so complacent that agitation isn't there, that, that intolerance isn't there, and it's building that. And it's trying to convey to those stupid leaders that something has to be done with it, you know? Because you're only poor, you only live in North Philadelphia, you know? You're nothing to me. And they weren't. Would you say solidarity is possible when you can't physically be there? Well, a lot of, some of my work, uh, I think you have to be there. I, th I, think, I, th I think part of it is being, is turning, turning out, being there. But also a lot of the solidarity that I did, I, I never, thought of it, never talked about it as solidarity, and probably people would look at me like, what are you talking about? It was making those phone calls, was, uh, was uh, doing the turnout, was getting the press, um, you know, so that, it was all a lot of work behind the scenes, a lot of work behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So, but for me, it was really also important to, to turn out, to be there. Now, the one thing I did want to tell you is I really think that if you're serious about solidarity, being in solidarity, I really think that you can't do it alone. It has to be through an organization. Maybe not through a community organization, maybe through Bread for the World. Maybe you have, there are organizations there. You don't have to start anything. And I think you need to find an organization that you believe in and can be part of. And that's when you learn about these issues and that's when you get into relationships with people and that's, you know, then you begin, I guess for me what I saw was I saw how much evil there was, how much resistance to good there was, especially by public officials. Um, I also saw, I mean, it gave me a new understanding of what community is, what truth is, what grace is. Um, I, learned, I learned what the church is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could um, talk about <clears throat> any possible challenges that you've had, which you mentioned a little bit, um, 
with building relationships um, with the community organizers from Philly, oh. specifically with regards to um, Me? kind of that acknowledgement of the power differences between yourself and I got over it. <laughs> I got over it. Uh, you know, we're so full of ourselves. I mean, I think it comes with being well off, financially well off, and also with being an academic, you have a title and you have some books under your belt, you know, that you've published, and you know, people treat you with respect around here, you know, too much respect almost sometimes. Um, and uh, so you expect, you know, when you go in there that you're going to be treated the same way, or, you know, deference. And, um, and it, for me, it, it, um, I had to let go of all of that, I had to let go of all that. And, uh, and it wasn't hard because because I had so much to learn. I had so much to learn from the community. I had so much to, I learned so much from the organizers who were, sometimes were pretty arrogant toward me. But I had so, I really learned from them. And um, so it was an education. It was an education on lots of levels, the intellectual level, the emotional, spiritual level, et cetera. Yeah, I think my one, one frustration was here at Villanova, I really had hoped either that the Center for Peace and Justice Education, now this is long, way before your time, that the Center for Peace and Justice Education would have joined PIA. And I had also hoped we approached the president to see if Villanova would join PIA, um, you know, years ago. And uh, what Villanova told, what the president told us was that Villanova was embarking on a capital campaign and they wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. Uh, and the Center for Peace and Justice, you know, they, they really saw it as just one organization among many organizations. There really wasn't the interest in it. We tried. We tried very hard, but we didn't get anywhere. So that was frustration, frustrating. I would have loved, I would have loved, I would have given my life to have had students, um, the Center for Peace and Justice, at least the Center for Peace and, Peace and Justice, be part of this organization. You would have learned so, so much. It would have been wonderful. It would have transformed the center, I think, but it didn't happen. That was frustrating. Was it difficult to achieve solidarity um, among the larger Philadelphia um, interfaith action um, when you had like all the different groups um, as part of it? Like when you were all broken up, like you said in meetings, like you kind of separated into your like. Oh, we should. We did that to identify ourselves. But no, we worked. We worked with one another. I, gosh. I mean, I may, I, Reverend uh, Kaufman, Fred Kaufman, who came and gave that talk on gun violence for the theology, um, I don't know what it was called, Colloquium on Gun Violence. Fred Kaufman is a, is a West Philadelphia Mennonite pastor. And, you know, I learned, I, I worked with Fred, Reverend Mary Laney, the Episcopal priest at Front and the Boulevard, St. Gabriel's Episcopal Church. No, we, the neat thing about it was, see these, these congregations basically work in isolation from one another. Reverend Laney didn't know uh, Reverend Miller uh, from uh, the Church of the Advocate or Reverend Kermit Newkirk, who was just three blocks down the street from him. They, didn't, they, they work in isolation, they never knew one another. And so now they're working with one another, really, and we're talking about battles, major battles, you know, with the police, we got rid of the police commissioner. We literally got rid of the former police commissioner. He was corrupt and he wasn't doing his job. And so you work together, you strategize together, you, you plan your actions together, you plan the, 
the big action, the mass action together. So you learn and you pray together. And um, I met so many, and there's still, I mean, I don't see them often now, but you know, at Mary Laney's funeral, we all were there. And I mean, there's, you know, solidarity. I mean, you, there's a bond that was formed, you know, and it was formed in the struggle for justice. And some of the, the lead, I'm talking about the pastors, but the, the members of the congregations that were working, I mean, they were just incredible. Mrs. Higgs was just, Mrs. Higgs, when they put up the Nehemiah homes, we got her in the bulldozer. You know, <laughs> so she learned how to drive because we wanted to, the mayor wanted to be in the bulldozer. We said, no way are you going to be in this bulldozer. So we were bulldozing the land to put up this affordable housing at, in West Philadelphia. So we said we wanted Mrs. Higgs there. Here's 80 year old Mrs. with a hard hat and she's pulling these gears. And it's just thrilling, thrilling. Because what you're talking about is you're talking about rebuilding a community. You're talking about building life, restoring life in this community. And that's it. And so it's physically, we call them Nehemiah houses. So it's, 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 it's the rebirth of communities. So, and it was just very, um, I mean, we would, we had one action where we were uh, blessing a mailbox, you know? I mean, this is, you don't have mailboxes anymore, but West Philadelphia, the, um, what was that center? It was a Catholic center in West Philadelphia. It was an art center. Sister Helen David was the art teacher there, and they didn't have a mailbox in their neighborhood. So we, we worked with the city to get a mailbox. Well, this is really important. And so we would have a blessing of the mailbox. <laughs> it was great. It was awesome. You don't have mailboxes now. You don't appreciate it. We also blocked, <laughs> we blocked, we blessed a street light. You know, there was a street crossing where kids were getting killed going across the street. There was no street light there. And we had a, we were to get a street light. And you bet we blessed that because that was saving kids' lives. So, it was fun. It was work, but it was fun. A lot of fun. What was the name of the organization I came? The, the major organization, and they still do training, is the Industrial Areas Foundation. It's a weird name, Industrial Areas Foundation. And they're based in Chicago now. Their office is in Chicago. And uh, it's a profession. Community organizing is a profession. You can actually make a good living. My organizer, our organizer in Philadelphia, was making more than, she, she was making more than I was making. Um, what's neat about the IAF is they do excellent training of their organizers and they stay with you. The training, the leadership training is done on the job. So you learn how to be a leader by being a leader, by doing it. And the organizers learn. So the IAF, Industrial Areas Foundation, and they have some of the strongest organizations that they have are in New York, New York City, very strong one in New York City. I'd, I'd recommend it. What was the name of the the leader who started, like the, the founder? Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky. He wrote two books. Wasn't a good writer. One was called uh, Reveille for Radicals and Rules for Radicals. It's not a, these, you know, they're little books, teeny books, but they were bestsellers. They're in our library. Mm hmm. Uh, our Campus Ministry Library, right down the hall. Mm hmm. Yeah. And during dinner, we have some YouTube clips from a film that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I always tend to be very respectful and, you know, all that. I try to, I try to be. 
And, uh, but um, it's, so it's very hard and, and people who have no power in the communities, they too are very respectful uh, toward authority. And it's very hard to learn to be confrontational and, uh, you know, and de make demands and, mm-hmm. One, one of the, the students had organized cameras ahead of this to do activist training. What are some of the things you think Villanova prevents or one of the, some of the obstacles to getting to that sort of place of empowerment? Training? Uh, just anything, what's your take on I think you need to be trained. I, I, I mean, I'm not answering your question directly. I actually think that Villanova's, I think the Center for Peace and Justice Education, the student activists, so-called activists, uh, I think they could use training. I think that uh, they could use training and organizing. And I don't know if the IAF would come in and do training, uh, might, but there are other community organizations that I was telling you about that are related to, that are spin-offs of um, the IAF who've actually said to me that, you know, we really would be happy to come in. I think you should have a course on organizing. I do. And I also think that you, it would be very good to have an organizer come in and to train you uh, to do your organizing, to be a f more effective organizers on campus. Yeah, to learn how to use, learn how to build relationships, learn how to, uh, I mean, some of the things that you've been doing, like with uh, fair trade and, uh, yeah, a lot of, I mean, I, yeah, students can, if you want to make change, if you want to change Villanova, and I'm not talking about, I'm really talking about significant change. What you should, what you're going to have to do is identify where, what do you want changed? You know, where are you disrespected? And then you have to learn how to, how to get that respect and uh, how to affect change. Yeah, you know, Christina uh, DiBerdino, Deber, what was her name? She worked on fair trade. Russell. Who was it? Yeah, with Russell. Yeah. She was really good. She, now, I don't know where she learned some of her, she learned some of her tactics, but she was excellent. She was, I was so proud of her, really proud of her. She's in law school now, I think. So training, you're going to have to pay for it. Not a couple thousand, but you're going to have to pay for it. And I do think, I think any course that you would take would also have action as, as integral to it. Mm -hmm. Be fun. Ooh, <laughs> watch out, Father Dunahue. Watch out. Um, I guess the question is just like, what advice would you have for college students who like do some sort of service, whether it be like a break trip or like a, a learning community? Like, how do you go about after that, like continuing to like live in solidarity? Like, how do you invest yourself into the lives of people you serve? Like, I think you have to join an organization. Okay. I think, I think you have to, whether it's a campus organization, um, I just, I, you have to join, like whether it, I, I mean, I'm a member of Bread for the World, mm -hmm. uh, but there are plenty of organizations that are addressing trafficking or organizations addressing hunger, or homelessness, and I just think you join the organization and you stay active, you become active in it, you learn. You, learn. I, you, you have to join, you have to be a part of something. Yeah, and you'll, you'll grow. Yeah, can't do it on your own. Jenna? Um, <clears throat> do you think that solidarity can be a state of mind or does it have to be relationship-based? Like, if you are passionate about something and so want to be in solidarity with people on an issue you're taking action on, is that enough? Or do people need to physically know that you're in solidarity, that you specifically are in solidarity with them to be in solidarity? I think
Both, Jenna. I, I think that um, I think action is really a key element of it. Action is absolutely essential, but reflection is as well. And um, and I think that um, your frame of mind your, your has to change, and it will change. I think it. Is, I I come the other way. I come from if if you are engaged in action, the action then will force you to reflect, and so. The other day I was, I was in a meeting, I was actually um, doing graduate comprehensive, you know, her graduate exams. And uh, the student we were examining, the graduate student we were examining, I could not understand what she was saying. And, um, and I said, um, I, I basically said, you need, tell me concretely what, I, I think very concretely. And for me, uh, and this really showed me how my thinking has changed. I have to think globally. I cannot think, I can think locally, but I need to think globally. And what I realized at that moment was it was really what Ignacio A. Acria was saying, that if you want to understand a situation and what is demanded of it, you need to place yourself in the most extreme uh, situations. So my mind in that extreme situation. So I can't remember what she was talking about, but immediately went to a global example, and that global example helped me to understand the, what, the actual, what is actually, the dynamics of what is going on. And then I understood better what needs to be addressed and what is demanded of us. So what I'm getting at is that when you're talking, it, it's, it's, what happens is you find your consciousness changing. You find that, and it's what Aya says, that we need to think from the feet of the crucified people, that I, I really am finding that my thinking actually to, it is starting or begins at a different place, uh, which is interesting because I never reflected on it, but that's actually what's happening. So as you become more drawn in and more engaged, what you find is that your thinking starts to change and you start to reflect from a different place. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's answering what you were looking for. Yeah, can I follow up on that? Yeah, go ahead. Um, can you... Like once you started to like change your thinking um, and like shifted your worldview a little bit, can you be in solidarity with a person, a community, an organization if they don't know who you are or if they don't know your name? Like if they don't know that you exist, can you be in solidarity with them? I don't know. Um, well, so I would hope that I'm in solidarity with the hungry of the world, I would hope. Uh, do I know their names right now? No, I don't. Do they know me? No. Um, it gets, for me, Jenna, it's gotten to the point where I do things because they need to be done, because there's work to be done, it's needed, I can do it, I do it. Um, it's not helping a whole lot, but it was much easier. I think it's much easier when I was working with PIA because I knew the people. I knew it was very tangible. Yeah. But you know, the other thing is that I think that um, my community is bigger. Like, I it's not necessarily. I, my my the people that I am in relationship with, I may not see very often. You know, it's broader. It's like across the globe. It's all across the globe. Yeah. So the community is bigger. Mm. That helps a lot. Yeah. I like struggle with that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, really, really hard.
75 minutes? <laughs> How many minutes? Yeah. So we're done? You're good? Okay. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.